Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 78, 1 through 39, and the wonders that he has done. Would you please join me now in prayer? Father, we thank you. Not only does your word contain doctrine that is teaching, that is reliable, it's trustworthy, it's clear, it's, it's for all of our lives. It's binding on our lives. But Lord, that, that doctrine happened in real time and in real space. Because you came into our time and into our space in the person and work of Christ. And so Lord, even as we look at, at this text today, we're going to be reminded of the truth of your word and how your word reveals your son, Jesus. And Lord, in the midst of a crazy season, the holidays, the the new year, Lord, we need to be reminded. We need to fix our eyes on the one who is always enough in every season of our lives. So Lord, as we look at this text now, may you use your word to confront us where we need to be confronted about our sin. May you comfort us where we need comforting May, may you help us where we need your help, which is always. We thank you, Lord, that your word is enough to address the various stages and seasons of our lives. So help us, Lord, uh, teach us and instruct us in the righteous way that we are to go as we look now at this psalm. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles and want to open them, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 78, 1 through 39 today. And uh, here is what Psalm 78, 1 through 39 says. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, but tell them, tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness, and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock, and caused waters to flow down the rivers. And yet they sinned still the more against him. 
rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rocks so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? And therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. And yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. And now man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like the dust, winged birds like the sands of the sea. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. And they ate, and they were well filled. For he gave them what they craved. But before they had uh, satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God arose against them. And he killed the strongest of them. And laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. And so he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. And when he killed them, they sought him. And they repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. And yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Well, this is the reading, our reading today from God's holy word. So may God bless the preaching of his word and may God bless the hearing of his word. Now, the book of Judges, it records a tale of woes of generations between Joseph's conquest and the kingship of David, during which Israel lived in spiritual weakness and foreign subjugation. The explanation for this deplorable situation is seen in Judges 2.10. After Joshua's time, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And an allusion to Judges is appropriate for our study of this psalm for two reasons. One is the evidence of the psalm suggests that it may have been written not long after the era of the judges. And another reason is that the psalm has expressed intention of avoiding the situation that occurred in Judges. Psalm 78 serves to tell the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord so that they should set their hope in God according to Psalm 78, 4 and verse 7. So first let's consider... Our first point, a testimony to God, a testimony to God. And, and what Asaph says in verse 5 of the psalm is really important because he states that God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel regarding the passing on of the knowledge of God's works. This same approach was mandated in the Bible's earliest books. God told Moses that he had hardened Pharaoh's heart, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson, that you may know that I am the Lord in Exodus 10, 1 through 2. And so the retelling of God's mighty acts of redemption was the explicit purpose of the Passover, which Israel celebrated annually, according to Exodus 13. Now, Deuteronomy 6, 6-7 made this task of even passing on the history of God's savings works a priority when he says, 
and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You see, Israel's offspring were intended to know not only what they were supposed to do, but how their worship and obedience related to God's saving works. Deuteronomy 6, 20-21 says, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? And then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Well, this text, it makes clear that biblical religion in both testaments is based on history, the great saving works that God has done. That is to say, Christianity does not merely consist of abstract beliefs, of ethics, or even religion. Christianity proclaims what God has done for our salvation and for our life. The Old Testament proclaims the exodus of Israel and all the great redemptive works that followed. The New Testament adds the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Son, and our Lord and Savior. Now, it's not possible to be a Christian at all without knowing and believing what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is virtually impossible to even be a strong and even a thriving Christian without an intimate awareness of the Old Testament and its record of divine works that eventuated and actuated uh, uh, the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, realizing this principle, Christians are gonna, Christians must see that their whole objective, their whole aim of their life, their duty is to teach the Bible to the generations that follow. We see this in verses three through four of this psalm when it says, fathers have told us the psalmist resolves, we will not hide them from their children. Now notice that he sees the young of his own time as their children, the offspring of the fathers who came before. David Dixon writes, the godly in every age ought to have the same care to transmit the word of truth to their posterity, which their ancestors had to transmit to them, and to pay the debt they owed to their faithful ancestors unto succeeding generations. That is to say, in every era of redemptive history, we need teaching from God's word that explains the meaning and significance of Bible events. In other words, our faith relies on both history and doctrine. J. Gresham Machen pointed us out over a century ago in the midst of a time in which this whole idea of feelings and our faith in the in the God's word and in God's son were running along the same tracks. And he warned this and stated this as well. From the beginning, the Christian gospel consisted in an account of something that had happened. And from the beginning, the meaning of the happening was sent forth. And the meaning of the happiness was happening was sent forth then. There was Christian doctrine. Christ died, that's history. Christ died for our sins, that is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in an absolute indissolvable union, he says, there is no Christianity. That is to say, what J. Grashamachin is saying is that Christianity is a revealed religion. That is to say, there is a true north. There is a way to know absolute truth. But it's not in ourselves. It's not in the world's religions. It's, it's not in, in, in our fanciful imaginations or anything of the like. It's in God's word. God has revealed himself and, and his word is enough. 
The 66 books that constitute the Word of God is enough for us to teach us, to instruct us, to help us to walk in in the way in which we are to go. Now, verse 2 of this psalm, it pursues this same agenda, saying, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from a bowl. And so the word for parable here is mashal, and it has the meaning of riddle, which is why this verse is quoted in Matthew 13.35 as being fulfilled in the parables of Jesus. Psalm 78 is like Jesus' parables in that a story is told with a redemptive meaning. The emphasis in this psalm is to ensure that the events that might be misunderstood are clearly explained to the people of God. And it's important for us to understand the meaning of biblical events and the doctrines that arise from them so so they do not remain dark sayings from the past. Paul wrote in the New Testament that the ancient events took place as examples for us and for our faith in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6. And this means that we must understand these events biblically and we must understand how they relate to our lives practically. And in case we doubt the importance of passing on knowledge of Bible events and doctrines and thus of serious Bible teaching in a local church, Asaph is going to work out four vital results for us of this idea. And the first is so that coming generations will know the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done in verse 4. This need for Bible knowledge is urgent in our generation today. The comedian Jay Leno pointed out the ignorance of Americans about the Bible by asking people in his studio audience to name even one of the four gospel writers in the New Testament. And when no answer was given, he asked for the names of the pop music group, the Beatles. Well, immediately voices rang out, Paul, John, George, and Ringo. And our point is, is that our generation with vast cultural knowledge is plagued by vast ignorance of God and of his work. The situation does not get much better, even with professing Christians. In 1999, the Bible Department at uh, Evangelical Wheaton College conducted surveys of Bible knowledge of incoming freshmen. One-third could not even identify Matthew as an apostle from a given list of names. A third also could not identify the book of Acts as containing the record of Paul's travels. One half could not even tell the Christmas story as told in Matthew or, or that the Passover events was recorded in the Exodus. Albert Muller attributes this biblical ignorance to evangelical youth ministries, which are asked to fix problems, provide entertainment, and to keep kids busy. And he asks, how many local church youth programs actually produce substantial Bible knowledge to young people? Well, if Psalm 78 is to be taken seriously, ministries directed towards children and teenagers specifically should be directed to teaching Bible knowledge and doctrine. And this is because, as Asaph sees it, the task of conveying biblical truth to the young will not be relegated solely to the church, but will be taken up as a primary calling of fathers and mothers in the home. Now, let me stop here. One, one, we're not against youth pastors here, but if, if there's going to be a youth pastor, and whatever your view is on youth ministry in the church, uh, it should be this, that, that youth pastors should be equipping the students to rightly handle the word of God. They should be teaching them uh, sound doctrine. They should be teaching them Bible and systematic, biblical and systematic theology, and maybe even church history. You know, our, the young, our young people today are not dumb. And, and it's the dumbing down of youth ministry that is, is a problem. And, and equally so, 
Parents can't treat youth ministry as just a time when you, you know, you get rid of your kids and you have some time to yourself at church. You need to be, as a parent, you need to be involved with your kids in church, in their youth, in the youth ministry, in any ministry that they're involved in. You should be involved. If there's any kind of teaching in that ministry, you need to be involved. You need to be the one figuring out, hey, is is what the youth pastor, is what the pastor's saying in that youth meeting, is what they're saying, is it sound? Is it biblical? Does it accord with the word of God? This is your responsibility as a parent. Passing it off, even as even many parents send their kids to Christian school for this reason. Well, I just want my kid to get instructed in, in the word. And, and that's a great desire, but you can't just pass the baton off and say and expect oh you know what my child because it's a quote-unquote christian school they're going to be taught the bible the the problem is is that many institutions aren't biblical at all even christian schools and so as a parent you can't just pass your kid off and say you know what uh this is all good you know i'm all good it's all good no, you need to be involved as a parent in the life of your children. We, we've seen too many Christian schools all throughout our country and even the world who have succumbed to worldliness and false doctrine and false teaching. And so we need as parents or even family members of parents, we need to be involved in the life of our family members. And this is equally true for fathers and mothers who are going to be held accountable for how they lovingly raise their child in the truth. You know, all all Christians should desire to know the Lord's deeds because as Asaph says, they are glorious and wonders that tell of his might to save, verse 4 says. Now, the the result of this knowledge is the second reason for teaching children. Verse 7 says, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. It is because of our generation's ignorance of the wondrous deeds of God that we are spiritually weak, hoping in things of the world rather than hoping in God. David Dixon writes that the way to foster faith and hope in God is to mark, to consider, and even keep in a sanctified memory how God hath already confirmed his word by his works and by pledges both of his power and purpose to perform what he has said. Amen. Now, a third important result of Bible knowledge is that we keep his commandments. Verse 7 of our psalm says today, Now, that is to say, Bible doctrine is immensely practical, and it leads to a lifestyle of cheerfully obeying the Word of God out of the great hope that is born in His saving deeds. You see, when we realize that God's law is the way of love, love for God and love for man, we're going to find it less onerous to refrain from hatred, lust, theft, false speech, and even discontentment. For Asaph is concerned that by knowing the Bible, his readers will not forsake God and abandon the faith. This was a pressing problem among the Israelites, who were so often plagued with apostasy and idolatry. Asaph's burden was that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God, according to verse 8. Now, some may object that God has promised to keep safe the salvation of all those who have trusted him. And this is true, but the Bible's teaching of eternal security includes the necessity of our persevering in the faith and of helping others to persevere. 1 Peter 1.5 combines these two, two truths, noting that we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
That is to say, God's power is joined to our faith in safeguarding our souls for heaven. And realizing the necessity of our persevering in faith and the importance of Bible teaching to our faith, Matthew Henry says this, Our greatest care must be to lodge our religion, that great deposit, pure and entire, in the hands of those who that succeed us. That is to say, you know what? Titus 2, an older man, is to walk alongside an, uh, a younger man. And also, older women are to walk alongside younger uh, younger women. And, and that is, that means that like I'm in my forties. That means I need to be walking alongside guys that are, that are in their thirties and twenties and even their teens. And, 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 and the idea is the same all across the board. Now we're going to look next uh, for our next point of our study, an example of spiritual failure. Now what we see here is a warning against falling away through ignorance of God and his works. And this is illustrated by the failure of the tribe of Ephraim to us. Verses 9 through 10 of Psalm 78 says this, The Ephraimites, armed with bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. Well, scholars debate the reference here. Some assert that Asaph is referring to the failure of Israel at the Battle of Ebenezer in 1 Samuel 4, 1-11, when the army was largely led by the tribe of Ephraim, or that the psalm is referring to the division of Israel when the northern tribes broke away from Solomon's son Rehoboam in 1 Kings 12. But a key to the psalmist's meaning is at the end where he writes in verses 67 through 68, God rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. This is a clear reference to God establishing his kingdom under David and Judah rather than in the northern locale of Shiloh uh, to Mount Zion at Jerusalem. The statement that Ephraim turned back on the day of battle and thus did not keep God's covenant may refer to the failure of this tribe like the others that that led it to uh, fulfill God's mandate to remove all the Canaanites from their portion of the promised land. And most important to the psalmist's thought, though, is that Ephraim forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them in verse 11. Verses 12 through 20, it remind us of the three great occasions when God's wondrous deeds revealed his salvation. The first was the breaking of the Pharaoh's yoke so as to deliver Israel from bondage in Egypt. Verse 12 says, In the sight of their fathers he performed wonders in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. Now, by means of ten plagues strategically directed against the gods of Egypt, the Lord showed his power to Pharaoh. And in the tenth plague, the angel of death slew the firstborn in every house not guarded by the blood of the lamb, as the Israelites were instructed. Now, remembering this deliverance, Ephraim uh, should have realized the uh, omnipotence of the Lord and his power to drive out the idol-worshipping Canaanites. How often is it precisely because we forget God's power that we get in that we give in to sin, failing to pray for a way of escape? And yet scripture is replete with warnings and with proofs that God can deliver us from temptation. By keeping in mind his works and his wonders, we are helped to apply our faith in the fight against sin. That is to say, we need to be taking home. Uh, you know, it's not enough. We, we talk about this often on, on the, this podcast. It's not enough just to be reading the word. Don't view Bible reading as just something that you're checking off in your life. Don't view it as a duty. Yes, it's a duty, but it's a delight. 
God has revealed himself in his word. And so we can know God. We can, we, we are invited in the word of God to get to know the God who made all the heavens and the earth. And he made us in his image and likeness. He, he has sent forth Christ the Son to pay our penalty in our place and for our sin and to be buried and to rise again. And he ascended to the right hand of our Father. He is even now our high priest, our intercessor, our mediator. And he is our soon returning king. And so all of this should remind us. And we need the reminder uh, if you're anything like me, we we can we're prone to wander as that as that hymn goes, and we feel it, we know it, right? We know it, we know that we wander, we know the ways in which we wander, and and one of the things that 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 we're seeing here in this text is, and, and we see it in the Old Testament, is we see that you know it's too easy just to walk through the motions. It's too easy just to check off a box to to just say, you know what, this this is something I'm going to do every day. And it just becomes another thing that we do, like taking a shower and having a meal and, and on and on it goes. All of our daily routines. But what's really important that we understand here, what the psalm is trying to get us to understand is that we're, we're talking about something that is infinitely more important than taking a shower or having food or drinking water or anything of the like. We're talking about things that are of ultimate importance, ultimate meaning. And, and this raises the stakes a bit. And, and the reason that we need the stakes raised is because we're so tempted to wander. This is why John can say at the very end of of his of his of First John he can say in First John five twenty one little children keep yourselves from idols, and the reason is is we are so tempted to wander we're we're so tempted to drift we're so tempted to treat this Christian life as just a matter of rote obedience of walking through the motions. This is why Proverbs four twenty three says that we're to guard our hearts with all due diligence. And what that means is that it requires great intentionality. It requires purpose, purposefulness of heart to guard ourselves, to keep, keep a guard, to, to take up the armor of God because we are united to Christ by faith in his name. And so we should not view Bible reading as just a duty. We, we should view Bible reading as a delight. We're getting to know the God who has revealed himself in the 66 books of the word of God. And what this does is it, is it helps us as we're reading, as we're studying, as we're meditating, as we're memorizing the word, as the Spirit is taking our reading of the word. He is applying the truth of his word to our lives. And yes, that means that, that there'll be conviction of sin. There'll, there'll be comfort. There'll be help. Uh, there, there'll even be uh, real growth and change of life in the grace of God. And all of that is good because we need it. Every, every day we should be growing more and more like Christ. And we should be seeing the painted glories, as Owen said, falling away even more. Now, next, Asaph recounts the great wonder of Israel's passage to the Red Sea in verse 13. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. They made the water stand like a, like a heap. The Israelites despaired when they saw the army of Pharaoh pursuing them with the sea at their back. Now, Israel despaired. Now, and yet at God's command, uh, Exodus 14, 21 through 22, 
Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back, and the waters were divided so that the people could pass through it. Now third, Asaph recalls the various ways by which God provided for Israel during his herring passage through the Sinai Desert. God protected his people from the harsh elements. Verse 14 of this psalm says, In the daytime he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He further provided for their needs uh, of refreshing water. In verses 15 through 16, he says, He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Now, anyone who's traveled through a great desert can testify to the grave threat of the sun and the severe difficulty of finding water. And this was especially so for the millions of, of Israelites who departed from Egypt with Moses. God's provision shows his miraculous power over nature and also his caring concern to provide for his own. Israelites who remember this episode would be encouraged in their faith so as to set their hope in God and to obey the commandments of God. Now, these great deeds of God were vital to Old Testament faith, just as they should continue to be for Christians today. They were particularly useful in pointing Israel's hope forward to Jesus Christ, who would provide a greater fulfillment to all the wonders. Moses led Israel out of Pharaoh's Egypt, but Jesus Christ has broken the bond of Satan that held us in slavery. The blood of the Passover lamb was a type of the atoning blood of Christ for our sins, according to 1 Corinthians 5.7. And moreover, the Lord who stood up in a mighty, to mighty Pharaoh will take up the quarrel with those who persecute the people of God today. The Red Sea shows the pattern for our passing from spiritual death to life in Christ, as we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4. David Dixon writes, The Lord's bringing his people both out of Egypt and out of the sea is a pledge of his power and purpose to bring his people through the hazards, all the hazards whatsoever, wherein all the others perish. You see, God's provision for Israel in the desert is a reminder of his pledge to care for all believers today. George Horn writes, Thus is Christ present with his church, while she sojourns upon the earth by his word and by his spirit, guiding her steps, enlightening her darkness, and mitigating her sorrows. Now, as Asaph understood it, the great danger is that God's people would forget what he has done and fall back into unbelief. He saw this danger fulfilled in Ephraim and the other Israelites who forgot his works and the wonders that he had showed him in verse 11. And as a result, they commit the great sins that are recorded in Exodus and Numbers. Verse 17 recounts, And yet they sin still all the more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Numbers 16 records the attempt of Korah and Dathan to lead an insurrection against God's chosen leader, Moses, because of the difficulty of the journey. Psalm 78.18 notes that they, are test they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. And the ideas of testing God and quarreling refer to how Israel was unsatisfied with God's mighty wonders, but demanded even more signs of his faithfulness and his power. Exodus 17, 1-5, we learn of how the people quarreled with Moses out of their fear for lack of food and water. Exodus 17:3 says, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Well, Moses challenged them in Exodus uh, 17 too. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now, Psalm 78, 19-20 recalls the, the people doubting. Can God spread a table in the wilderness, they admitted. He struck the rocks so that water gushed and, and streams overflowed, but they still demanded. Can he also get bread or meat for his people? 
Now, Jesus compared the ancient Israelites to the unbelieving religious leaders of his day who would not believe in him. Declaring his death on the cross a sufficient sign to prove God's faithfulness, Jesus warned in Matthew 12, 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, the psalmist is appalled at the practical unbelief among God's ancient people, despite such abundant testimonies that should have led them to trust in God with praise to his name. We should be more careful in condemning them, since we actually do worse in light of the greater revelation that we have received in Jesus Christ. Do we today realize the foolish and even the sinful company we keep when we refuse to walk in the way of God, that, that we demand that God do something more to gain our trust or even complain against the providences of God? Charles Spurgeon reminds us of our need both for forgiveness and a new spirit from God when he says this, Alas, how we have quarreled with our mercies and curiously pined for some imaginary good, counting our actual enjoyments to be nothing because they did not happen to be exactly conformed to our foolish fancies. They who will not be content will speak against providence even when it daily loadeth them with benefits. John Piper once said that, that we might see one that God is doing a thousand things all at once, well, really an infinite amount, but we may only be able to see a couple of them. And that's what Charles Spurgeon is also saying. We, we can forget that, that we're talking, when we talk about the Lord God, we're talking about the one who made everything by the word of his power. We're talking about the one who upholds the world by the word of his power. We're talking about the one who gives us life and breath and, and food and water and shelter. We're talking about the one who sent forth the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and King, our prophet, priest and King, to die in our place and for our sin and to be buried and to rise again. We're talking about the one who is even ordering all the events of our lives according to his word and to his promise and for his glory and for our good. And that's what makes Spurgeon's quote so powerful. Let me read the last sentence. He says, They will not be content. They who will not be content will speak against providence even when it daily loadeth them with benefits. That is, God is doing an infinite amount of things in our lives in a daily, on a daily basis. Every, every week that goes by, God has been at work in our lives, at work in us, at work through us, to help us, to, to demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. And how quickly we forget this. How quickly I forget this. How quickly I get discouraged and I forget, you know what, the Lord is at work. The Lord is at work. What we need to do is we need to remind ourselves of, of the need to be faithful to God, to be faithful to what Scripture says, and to live faithfully in light of what Scripture teaches. And we need to remind ourselves again and again and again. This is a Hebrews uh, 13, 3, 13, uh, 313 situation, Hebrews 313 situation. That, that we should not harden ourselves while today is today. This is why we need to, as the text says there, we need to remind ourselves. We need to remind others of, of the, the grace of God, of the goodness of God, of the love of God, of the justice of God, of the, of the beauty of God, the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God. We need to remind ourselves of, of biblical truths and theological realities that, that define and give shape and meaning to our lives. We all need this.
We need to remind and preach our, our, these things to ourselves. And we need to remind and preach these things to uh, others around us. Reminding them, instructing them. Reminding them, hey, you know what? In the midst of that situation, you know what? Uh, God is at work. He, he's at work in, in this way. Uh, this is eminently encouraging. Uh, you can even notice, hey, you know what? I see that the Lord is really helping you in, in this area of, of your life. You know what? That is so encouraged. I'm so encouraged to see that. And, and this, this speaks the truth and love. This builds up one another and really helps uh, to encourage us and, and one another in the Lord and in his work. And the reason that this is so important is that we're going to talk next about a God to remember. Now, as we draw to the middle of this long historical psalm, we have been taught to teach the record of God's deeds and thereby to avoid the spiritual failures into which others have fallen. Having been taught not to forget what God has done, we're reminded by Psalm 78, 21 through 39 of the things that we always should remember about God, the things that we just talked about, that we should preach to ourselves and to others. First, Bible history should cause us to remember that ours is a holy God whose wrath burns against sin. Verses 21 through 22 tells of the Lord's reaction to the rebelling and testing of Israel when it says, Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Divine wrath, it's not pretty. It's, it's not vindictive. It's not ennoble as human anger so often is. As John Murray writes, God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Jai Packer notes that wrath is the right direction of moral perfection in the creator towards moral perversity in the creature. Asaph wanted the Israelites to remember specifically what happened when Israel rebelled against God. He seemed to note a specific episode when Israel complained in the hearing of the Lord, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them in Numbers 11 verse 1. Number 16 records that when Korah, Dathan, and Abram rebelled against the Lord, leading 250 chiefs against Moses and Aaron, God struck them down by causing the earth to swallow them whole in Numbers 16, 32-33. That is to say, anyone who foolishly assumes that God will not respond angrily to high-handed wickedness would do well to remember what is recorded in the Bible itself. Psalm 78, 21 says the Lord heard, just as God is aware of all sin, so that he is perfectly informed about the true state of all rebellion in order to send forth his perfect wrath. Now, notice that the sin towards which God is particularly wrathful is unbelief. Verse 22 says this, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. This shows that a heart that rebels in unbelief and ingratitude to God is at, a, at the core of all wickedness. Dixon writes this, Misbelief is a more grievous sin than many esteem it, for it calleth God's truth, mercy, goodness, power, constancy, all into question. This is why Jesus responded to Satan's temptations in the desert. When the devil sought for Jesus to follow the Israelites in their sin, in Matthew 4, 4, Man, did, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so notice then how faith in God's word causes us to trust his power. John Calvin comments, Faith, then, is the root of true piety. It teaches us to hope for and to desire every blessing from God, and it frames us to yield obedience to Him, while those who distrust Him must necessarily be always murmuring and rebelling against Him. 
Now, the history of God's dealing with Israel, they reveal him to, to be not only a God of wrath, but also a God of grace. This truth is recounted in a summary of the episode in which God provided manna from heaven to feed his hungry people. Psalm 78, 23-24 says this, And yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. You see, God's saving grace is bestowed on the undeserving. And this was a case when he fed the rebellious Israelites. No sooner had the Exodus generation passed through the Red Sea than they complained again about their hardships and longing to return to bondage. God graciously responded by causing bread to fall down out of heaven. In verse 25, Asaph says, Men ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. Likewise, it was after the people complained in Numbers 11 that God caused the wind to shower quail on them to give them meat. Now, now notice how Psalm 78 joins God's goodness to his power over nature to enable his grace to succeed. Ver, uh, Psalm 78, 26-28 says, He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. You see, God did not give poorly, but showered blessing on the Israelites. Asaph notes the wonder of it all, grain that fell from heaven and food that was provided at the hand of angels. And so we're, we're reminded that while God is holy so that we should not rebel against him or face his wrath, he is also filled with grace so that those who trust him will receive, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.20, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. God's gifts are freely given, marvelously worked, abundant in meeting our needs and satisfying to our souls. <coughs> Psalm 78, 29 says, They ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. Let us therefore remember the grace of God and trust him completely. And sadly we can say, these great blessings did not keep the former Israelites from unbelief and sin. Which is why Psalm 78 wants us to learn the lesson for their failure. The stories mentioned in this psalm show not only that God is wrathful to sin and gracious to those in need, but also that he's faithful to his covenant both in fulfilling his warnings and in providing mercy according to his promises. Verses 30 through 33 recall how God fulfilled his judgments on the people who continue in unbelief, saying this, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. And in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. He, he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. God had warned the Israelites not to believe and rebel. And when they persisted, he brought forth his great warnings. The generation of the Exodus, which had, had seen such great wonders of the Lord, was required to wander 40 years in the desert until the last of them had died. And in this way, Psalm 78 shows that those who live in a worldly way and in unbelief will die under the judgment of God unless they repent and believe and trust in the person and work of Christ alone. This mercy, as God remembers his promises to save, is a theme on which the first half of the psalm concludes. Verses 34 through 35 say this of this psalm. And when he killed them, they sought them. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remember that God was their rock, the most high, their redeemer. You see, Asaph notes that this seeking was partially hypocritical and somewhat dishonest since, since their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. 
And even then, God was compassionate. Verses 38 through 39 say this. He atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. So this mercy and fulfillment of the promises of God is why there was even an Israel in Asaph's time and why there is a Christian church today. God understood the weakness of sinful human nature and showed compassion on those he promised to save. Far, far from merely winking at sin and coddling it and even tolerating evil, the Lord did something even more wonderful. He sent his son to bear our sin and to atone for our guilt. Asaph writes that God in his compassion atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them in Psalm 78, 38. So by having his son Jesus bear on the cross the penalty that our sins deserve, God propitiated his own wrath. And whereas Asaph rejoices that God restrained uh, his, his anger often and did not stir up his wrath in verse 38, the New Testament declares that God has put an end to the sins of those who believe by pouring out his wrath once for all on the cross and on the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And while God was patient with Israel, he has promised to do even more for you today if you will but look to him in repentance and faith in Christ alone. God promises in Christ to grant eternal salvation. And he proclaims in Hebrews 8.12, I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Well, our last point for our time together is demands my life, my all. And for this same reason that Psalm 78 urges its readers to know and even pass on the record of God's saving deeds and their meanings. Well, Jesus provided the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to his disciples before leaving to take up the cross. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, he says this, Do this in remembrance of me. And in this way, Jesus points us back to the original exodus from Egypt and its Passover meal, and then to the great event of all redemptive history, his death on the cross to atone for our sins. Speaking to this, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so the great point of Scripture, as it carries on the story of Psalm 78, and it centers on the coming of Christ, is that sinners must repent and believe in the death of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and for eternal life. Do not forget that God is wrathful towards sin today, but gracious in providing a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us who have read and learned the lessons of the Word of God, who remember the wondrous things that God has done and have set our hope in God, we should not forget the proper response in surrendering our entire lives to His glory. And where we have not, may we repent, may we confess again our need of God's grace, which we should do every day. Isaac Watts explained the lessons that we are to learn from the history of Christ when he said this, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Father, what, what a great passage of scripture that, that you have given to us in, in this psalm, in Psalm 78, 1-39. What, what great teaching, what great reminders, what, what, a, what a great time just to pause and to think about all the many ways in which both in our words and our actions and our thought lives, in, in our behavior and our conduct, at, at our jobs and our homes, Lord, we, we have sinned. We sin in our words, we sin in our thoughts, we, we sin in our hearts. Lord, forgive us for the many ways in which we are apathetic 
uh, towards you, towards our sin, towards our Savior, towards our King. Well, Lord, we confess our neediness of, of your grace. And we cast ourselves on the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ. Lord, we, well, Lord, we're so thankful that your grace is not only enough to save us, and we, we do pray, Lord, even now, that you would open eyes and ears to the truth of, of your word, and that, that you would lead many to repentance of faith in your Son. But Lord, we also pray, I also pray for those who are in Christ, that they would continue on, that they would persevere, that, that they would remember in the midst of their trials and even in the, the midst of good seasons of life, that we would remember that we are always in need of you. You hold us fast. You uphold this world by the word of your power. You uphold our very salvation by, by the death and resurrection of Christ. And even now, Lord, you are interceding for us. You are our advocate. At all times and all ways, you are at work among your people. So, Lord, even, even if we only just understand a sliver of that in this life, may, may our hearts be encouraged and may our faith be expanded in your, in your great power and majesty so that, so that in times when we're facing discouragement and depression and anxiety and doubt, Lord, we can look back and say, you know what? In that time, the Lord was at work. And I, and I remember, I remember the Lord at work. Just, just as we have looked at the reminder of biblical history today and how you are at work in the history of your people. You are at work. And so, Lord, even there, we, we have much to be encouraged by. We have much to be thankful for. So, Lord, help us to posture our hearts rightly under the providence of God, remembering that you are working all things for the good of your people, for their joy and for our good, uh, conforming us evermore into the image and likeness of our Lord and King. So we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the truths that we have discovered here in this text. And we pray, Lord, that we would now take them and that you would apply them to our hearts and our lives, leading to real change of life and, and, and growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.